on page 4, chapter 23, on lawful oaths and vows. And we did the first two paragraphs uh, last time, and we'll do the final three today. So chapter 23, and we'll begin in paragraph 3. But before we do so, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin our study. Well, Father, we thank you again for the time to be together with your people today, and Lord, especially to have your word among us. Lord, knowing that uh, without your word, we would not have any life. Lord, there would be no salvation, for we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have seen fit, Lord, to bless us with this grace and this kindness. And Lord, we pray that your word would be powerful among us. Lord, that it would produce within us faith and repentance and obedience to you. Lord, that we would bear much good fruit. Lord, the good fruits uh, that are pleasing in your sight as a result of our hearing of the word of God. So, Lord, we pray that you bless our study this afternoon and teach us, Lord, to be truthful in all that we say, to be men and women of our word, both in our words that we make toward you and toward one another, that we might uh, be like our Father who is in heaven, uh, who, when he gives an oath, we know that he will most assuredly bring it about. So, Lord, be with us and bless us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 23, and we're on paragraph 3, and again, this chapter is dealing with lawful oaths and vows. Lawful, not unlawful, but lawful oaths and vows, and what this means before God. And we last time dealt with uh, the fact that a lawful oath is a legitimate form of worship, that this is a part of the Christian life, uh, and that there are times and seasons when we are called uh, to give such oaths and vows but by legitimate authorities, uh, and that whenever we do this, we should do it with much seriousness and the weightiness of what we are swearing to do. We should fulfill our word, but then also we should day in and day out be truthful. We should not have to take an oath to affirm every single thing that we're going to do, but day in and day out, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And then when there is the occasion that calls for us to give an oath or a vow, then we ought to attend to it with all seriousness and diligence and be faithful to do what it is that God has called us to do. And that's what we pick up in chapter 23, paragraph 3. <clears throat> there it says, Whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act and to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. For the Lord is provoked by ill-advised, false, and empty oaths, and because of them, this land mourns. So here they are calling the attention that whenever we are giving an oath that is authorized by the word of God, so this would be a lawful oath, a legitimate oath, right? Not an illegitimate one, not a careless oath, not a heedless oath, but one that is authorized by the word of God, and we're under that obligation that we should consider it with due gravity and seriousness, that this is a very weighty matter because we are giving our word to God that we are going to do what it is that we have sworn to do, both to God and to often our fellow man, because it's often that an oath or a vow is confirmed in the presence of witnesses, witnesses on earth and then a witness in heaven. God being the witness in heaven and our fellow man being the witness on earth. And therefore, we should be faithful to that vow. We should do whatever it is that we have sworn to do and consider the weightiness of this act. 
and affirm nothing except what one knows to be true. Right? Whatever it is that is true and good is what we should vow, and then we should do those things and not deviate from it to the left or to the right or find ways to try to wiggle out of these things. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 11 and 12. Leviticus 19.11 says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So there, we should not swear by the name of God falsely. Right, Falsely swearing by the name of God is when we swear to do this in the name of the Lord, but then we don't do it. Right? We're not faithful to our word. We said it in falsehood. And he says, don't do those things. Because if you do, you profane the name of God. Right? We can't profane the name of God and think that we're going to escape the judgment of God. We don't want God's judgment, his wrath, his condemnation coming upon us. So we don't want to take his name in a profane way, in a careless way. Right? This is to blaspheme or to take the name of the Lord in vain. So if you swear by the name of the Lord then be faithful and do what it is that God has called you to do. That would be with seriousness and weightiness. Because then also, they say, the Lord is provoked by such ill-advised false and empty oaths, and because of them the land mourns. When people swear falsely, it provokes God, right? It is offensive to Him, and we don't want to offend God. This is the problem that you see so often. People are consumed with offending another person. They are consumed with not rubbing people the wrong way. Well, we don't want to give offense to, to other people. This is why many people won't speak up and tell the, the gospel to people. They won't confront sin when they see it because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want them to be upset with us. But do we ever consider that maybe our actions are upsetting to God? That maybe what we're doing offends Him? Who's the one that we should care about more than any other? Not what man says, but what God says. And we don't want to offend God. So if we don't want to offend God, then don't be false to our oaths, but do what it is that God has called us to do. Jeremiah 23, verse 9. Jeremiah 23, verse 9. It says, Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns, and the pasture of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, 
Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. So here the prophets who swear in the name of the Lord, right? That's what a prophet does. He swears that this is the word of the Lord. This word that I'm giving you is indeed a word from God. But then when they do this, they tell the people lies, right? They strengthen the hand of evildoers. They do these types of unsavory things, and they're not speaking in truthfulness and in right. And because of this, in verse 10, he says, the curse of the land mourns. The land mourns because the land is under a curse because of the sin of the people. That is brought about by these false prophets swearing to the people, thus says the Lord, when the Lord did not send them to speak. He did not put those words in their mouth, yet they are pretending as if their word is from God. And in this way, they are taking God's name in vain, and they are swearing falsely by the Lord. Okay, another passage under this that's not listed, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know, what, they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. So there, he's warning them that when you draw near to God, right, don't come to speak, don't be rash with your mouth, don't be hasty with your words, but come to listen, right? We ought to come to listen to the word of the Lord. But then he's not saying that there's never a place to speak. But when we do speak and when we do make a vow, then you better take it seriously. That's verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth not lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you should fear. So there, if you do open your mouth and you do make a vow before God, then don't delay paying it. Do what it is that you vowed because God has no pleasure in fools. A fool is someone who vows but does not keep. He's a foolish man. He has no fear of God. He says, don't be like that, but pay what it is that you should owe. And it's better to not make a vow than to make one and not keep it. So better just to keep your mouth shut and not say anything than to open it, make a vow, not keep it, and then have God destroy you. And don't say to the messenger, eh, it was a mistake. This witness, the person, that I didn't really mean it. You know, I wasn't thinking clearly. I was foggy. I hadn't had a cup of coffee or 10 cups of coffee like I needed in the morning to wake me up. So I didn't really understand what I was doing. No, you can't do that. You made the vow. You have to keep the vow. Okay, one other passage would be Numbers chapter 30. Numbers 30, the whole chapter is devoted to vows and regulations concerning those things. 
Numbers chapter 30, verse 1. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So there, if he makes the vow, he needs to keep the vow. He should do whatever it is that he swore by binding himself with this pledge, and he should not break his oath. Now, verse 3 through the rest gives uh, further definition and what to do in this situation where a daughter makes a vow without the knowledge of her father, and a wife makes a vow without the knowledge and blessing of her husband, right? These are two that are under the authority of another person, but they made a vow to God, so what is supposed to happen in that situation if the father or if the husband doesn't agree with the vow? Verse 3, if a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by pledge while within her father's house in her youth. So here, the exception here, or the, what's being dealt with here is it's a woman, but she's in her father's house while still in her youth before she's married. Before she has gone to live under the authority of her husband, she's still in her father's house, and she's still under the authority of her father. So she makes a pledge or a vow while in her father's house. Her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her. Then her vow shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. So the father knows about the vow. He hears about the vow. And he gives her his blessing and says, yes, this is a good vow. And yes, you should be faithful to this. And I affirm it and I approve of it. And you should keep this vow. Then what is she obligated to do? She's obligated to keep it. But if her father opposes her on that day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Here, the father says no. Say she's a 15-year-old flighty girl, and she says, I make a vow to never get married, and I'm going to serve the Lord all the days of my life. And her father knows that she's fickle and flighty like this, that she doesn't know what she's talking about. And he says, no, no, this is not going to be the case. One, I'm not going to have to take care of you the rest of your life. You need to get married, right? And he knows that she needs to get married and have a husband and raise a family and that she doesn't understand what she's saying. So the father says, no, we're not, this does not have my blessing. Well, then the vow doesn't stand and God will forgive her. She has to repent because she shouldn't be so careless with her words and do these types of things. So she has to repent and ask God to forgive her and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her in this, in this vow. Then in verse 6, the same applies to the wife in the marriage, right? Under the authority of her husband, right? If she marries a husband, so here we're same girl. Now she's married to a husband. While under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears it, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. So now she's married, she makes a vow or a thoughtless utterance, right? Whether it's a legitimate vow or a thoughtless utterance, but the husband doesn't reprove her, doesn't oppose her in these things because he doesn't want to offend his wife. This is often the case. 
The husbands don't want to offend the wife, so they don't say anything to the wife. But if the wife is sinning, what is the husband's obligation? He has to confront it. And the same goes for the husband. If the husband is sinning, then the wife needs to confront it as well. Just as Sarah reproved Abraham whenever she needed, he, he needed to cast Ishmael and Hagar out of the household because of what Ishmael was doing to Isaac, but Abraham didn't want to. His wife told him, this is what you need to do. And then God came and said, you need to listen to your wife. So it works both ways. But here, the wife makes a vow or a thoughtless utterance. The husband doesn't oppose her. Then she has to fulfill it. She has to fulfill it before God. But, verse 8, if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. So now the husband opposes it, says, no, this is not what we need to do, then God will forgive. Then verse 9, but any vow of a widow or a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. The widow, because her husband is dead and he's not in authority over her anymore, and the divorced woman, because her husband has divorced her and he's not in authority over her anymore. Now she's bound to do what it is that she has said. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all of her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vow or concerning her pledge of herself shall stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all of her vows or all of her pledges that are upon her, he has established them because he said nothing to her on that day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. So if he says nothing, the vow is affirmed, but then he tries to avoid it later, then who's going to pay? Him, right? He will bear her iniquity, right? He will be punished, right? This is where the first part is when the women get mad because they don't like it to have the husbands in authority over him. Well, what about this part? Because who bears the iniquity? It's the husband that bears the iniquity because he did not exercise his legitimate rightful authority. He holds the greater responsibility. And he, not that she's off the hook. She'll pay as well, but he has the greater sin because it was his responsibility to do something about it. Right? And in that way, uh, he will be condemned. Okay, all right, so those are passages concerning oaths, vows, and how it is that we should keep them, and these types of exceptions and qualifications to an oath. Okay, uh, paragraph four. An oath is to be expressed in the plain and ordinary meaning of the words, without any ambiguity or mental reservation. Don't play games with words. This is what people love to do. They love to double talk or double speak. They'll say a word, but then they don't mean what they say. Or they'll use it in a vague, ambiguous way and then use that ambiguity in order to get out of what it is that they've promised to do. These are the types of things that men love to do. So whenever the oath is made, it needs to be expressed 
in plain, ordinary meaning of the words. Right? Not unordinary meanings, not unbiblical meanings, plain, ordinary meanings of the words. We've heard it said many times that false teachers, they use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, and they use common words with an uncommon meaning. This is the way they operate, and how it is that they're able to deceive many, many people because they're not paying attention. Just this week, <clears throat> me and Caleb met with a man who is in a cult. And this man, he was a oneness Pentecostal. They don't believe in the Trinity. Okay? They deny the Trinity and many other heresies as well. Like one, for example, they believe Jesus had a human body, but not a human soul. His, his soul part was the, the Godhead, and then his human body was just a shell that held the Godhead. So they have many, many crazy beliefs out there. And as we sat down and read the Bible with him and went through passages, this is what he kept doing. What, whatever it says plainly and clearly, well, that's not what that means. That, that's not what that means. They're always twisting words, either, whether a biblical word or just common basic English, right? There's not even the agreement on the common understanding of a preposition, right? When it says this word, what does it mean, right? And it's always an excuse, a way of twisting it. This is what they do. They wrangle about words. They wrangle over words, definitions, meanings. Uh, this isn't what it means. This is what it means. Right? You, oh, yeah, well, the, if you go back to the Hebrew, if you go back to the original languages, they love to do these kinds of things in order to circumvent what the Bible is actually saying and establish their own false teaching. Well, people do this with O's as well. We should speak plainly, honestly, so that there's no ambiguity and everyone knows exactly who we're talking about, what we're talking about, right? What it is that we are dealing with. This is the way that we should speak. And when these oaths are made, they should be expressed in plain, ordinary meaning of the words, right? Not some hidden alternative meaning that I have that you don't know about, because that's the way they get over on people, right? When I say it, this is what I mean, but when you hear it, you think something else. You think something contrary to what I am saying. We shouldn't do that. Without ambiguity or mental reservation, right? Not I'm saying it, but in my mind, I'm thinking something else. I'm saying that I swear to have and hold you, to be committed to you till death do us part. But in my mind, I'm saying, unless someone better comes along, right? I'll be faithful to you as long as you're the best option. But if someone better comes along, then I'm going after them. No way. Because when that person hears that, they're assuming that when you say it, this is what you mean. So we should use plain language, not only when we're talking about oaths and vows, but all the time. All the time in our common day-to-day -day speaking to one another, this is how we ought to speak in plain, ordinary ways. Psalm 24. And again, false teachers, they love to make things extremely, they want things to be so complex, they want to muddy the water so much that no one has any idea what they're talking about. And then that's why they get you to read their books, right? Because if you'll buy the book for $30 or $40, then you'll understand what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, okay, I'll buy the book. Don't buy it. Don't. Just stick with the Bible, okay? Okay, Psalm 23 Verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So here we're talking about ascending the hill of the Lord, going to heaven. Who are those who can go to heaven and dwell with God for all eternity? Clean hands and a pure heart. He's clean on the outside and he's clean on the inside. He has a clean heart and as a result of his pure heart, he has clean hands in that he's not practicing sin. He doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. So inwardly, right, he's not believing lies, nor does he swear deceitfully. His lips are speaking what is truthful. He's not speaking lies, right? The devil is the father of lies, and his children speak lies just like the father. God is the God of all truth, and his children speak what is true. When we come to the Bible, it's not ambiguous. It's not vague. That's part of the point we were making this morning. When God talks about sin, he doesn't do so in vague, ambiguous ways. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes directly, straightforward, like a freight train, and exposes it for what it truly is. Well, the way that God addresses things is how we should address things. Openly, plainly, according to the true sense and meaning. And this should be the case in all of our conversation, right? Day to day, with our spouses, with our children, with our church family, with our loved ones, with people we meet out in the world, we just have to speak truthfully to them and know that if we're saying what is true, then we're doing what's pleasing to God, right? And we're not talking about clubbing people in the head with baseball bats, stomping on their feet. No one's talking about that. But speaking in a rational uh, way, in a calm way, composed way, and saying this is a sin, right? This is heresy, right? That's not evil, right? That is speaking the truth in love because it's truthful and it's right and people need to know those things. Okay, uh, paragraph five. A vow must not be made to any creature but to God alone. Vows should not be made and performed with the most uh, vows should be made and performed with the most conscientious care and faithfulness. However, Roman Catholic monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and obedience to monastic rules are by no means steps to higher perfection. Instead, they are superstitious and sinful snares in which Christians may not entangle themselves." See, this is the way we need to talk about things. See how clear they are? There's no vagaries at all. You know exactly what they think about monastic vows and the Roman Catholic Church, right? And they're addressing these things, right, very openly and plainly. And we might say, well, why are they always picking on the Roman Catholics? Because the Roman Catholic Church in their day was the dominant majority false church in the world that they were dealing with on a day-in and day-out basis, this was the false church, the false prophets that were in their face all the time were the Roman Catholics, and it was on their mind. So they addressed these things, right, both generally, right, they're talking about vows, but then when there's specific instances, especially when they know that these things are going to be in the minds of the people, then they want to address them so that people know what we're talking about. Just like in our day, right, if we lived 100 years ago, we would certainly preach against homosexuality whenever we're going through a passage like that in Scripture, but it's not on the forefront of our mind because it wasn't being practiced openly such as it is in our own generation. But in our day, this sin is so prominent in the culture and among the people that we have to talk about it how much? 
All the time, right? Because it does, I know every week, whenever you go about your day-to-day business, you're coming across this in one way or another. It's always in our face. So we have to talk about it so that we're reminded this is what the Bible says. That's why they bring up Roman Catholics so much. Because it was constantly in their face and they're having to deal with these people and they need to know what does the Bible teach about these things. And, and they came out of this tradition only a few years prior. right? So it was less than 100 years since they had come out of that tradition. And when that church dominated England, so this is why they're dealing with these things. Okay, so a vow must not be made to any creature but God alone. We do not make vows to Mother Mary. We do not make vows to St. Thomas, to St. Peter, to St. Paul, to any other creature. We make vows to who? To God alone. Just like we don't pray to Mother Mary. That's idolatry. It is sinful. It is evil to offer prayers to Mary, to a saint, to some person, to the Pope. We don't pray to him. We pray against him, right? That's what we should do. So we don't pray pray to people. We don't make vows to people. We make vows to God, right? To God and to God alone. So no vow should be made to any creature but God. And when we make our vows to God, it should be performed with conscientious care and faithfulness. Now, again, the assumption here is it is a legitimate vow. It's a biblical lawful vow. If the vow is lawful, then we should attend to it with care and faithfulness. Psalm 76. Psalm 76, verse 10. It says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So there, make your vows to the Lord your God. Right. So you make the vow to the Lord your God and you perform them. You keep them. You're faithful to do what it is that you have vowed. An example of this, which we read this morning, we'll read again from Genesis 28. This is what Jacob did when he was leaving his, the household of his father and mother and going to live uh, with his family, uh, with his uncle, and he was praying that God would bring him back. And he made a vow to God that, God, if you will do this for me, then this is what I will do for you. And when he's making this vow... He's not making conditions of God. He's not putting God to the test, right, in an evil way. He's not saying, you have to do this for me, and then and only then will I serve you, right? I take Jacob to be a believer already at this point, and he's simply stating it in the sense of a further confirmation that if you prove yourself faithful to me, you've been faithful to me thus far. If you prove yourself faithful to me and bring me back here, then I will know for certain that you are the Lord my God and I will serve you even more. And this is what I will do to you because he's setting out on a very precarious journey. He's leaving and he won't return for many, many years. And he's going completely empty-handed and he's going to be dependent upon the kindness of others. He's going to have to depend upon strangers 
to provide for him, to welcome him into the household, for things to go in a favorable way. He knows the promises of God. He knows the promises of God rest upon him. So he's asking God to be with him, to bless him, to prosper him in what he does. And then if God is, does this, then he swears to the Lord that he will serve him only. And then he will also worship God in this place. And he will give to him a tenth of all that he owns. 28 verse 18. Or yeah, verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So here, he's asking God to be with him. He's asking God to keep him in this way that I go to help me be faithful, to help me continue in the things that you have for me, give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So he's not asking, God, if you give me $10 million, then I'll give you a million. He's not asking for that. What's he asking for? Basic necessities. Give me food and give me clothing. Right? Anything above that would be a blessing from the Lord. Give me the simple necessities of life. That's what he's asking for, is for God to provide for him. So that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So be with me and bring me back. Then the Lord shall be my God. Again, I don't think he's saying, you're not my God now, but I'll make you my God then. He can't be saying that because God isn't going to hear that prayer. And here it's being used as a legitimate vow. And God fulfilled these things, and Jacob fulfilled these things. right? So he can't be saying these carelessly, loosely, in a sinful way. But I take it that he simply means that if God is with me and brings me back, it will be a further confirmation to me that he is my God, he is the Lord, and that I will continue serving him as I am this day. I will come and worship him, and then I will give to him a full tenth of what he gives to me. And then what does Jacob do? God brings him back and he fulfills his vow. He goes back to this place and he fulfills the vow that he made to God. So he took it seriously. He didn't do it carelessly, but he was serious and he did what God called him to do. Okay, so that is a legitimate vow. And he was serious and he fulfilled it faithfully. However, there are also sinful, illegitimate vows, and we should have nothing to do with those. An example is Roman Catholic monastic vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and obedience to monastic rules, which are by no means steps to higher perfection. This is what the monks, the monastic vows, these various orders, they call people to do things in a rash way to do things that are not commanded by God in the Bible, but are actually contrary to what God commands in the Bible. And then they give the pretense that this is a higher form of godliness, of spirituality. Oh, he's, he's a monk. 
He's devoted himself to God. She's a perpetual virgin. She's given herself to perpetual virginity. And look at how spiritually and high-minded these people are. While the rest of us who are getting married and having children and raising our families, we're a bunch of duds and dopes. These are the examples that we should follow, and the rest of us are a bunch of losers because we didn't give our life like this. This is what they do. It's based upon pride, their own arrogance, because it's not found in Scripture. If it's not found in the Bible, then it's based upon the pride of man because they're not content with the godly life laid out in the Scriptures, so they have to add to the Scriptures. Well, what does the Bible tell us will happen to those who add to the Word of God? They're going to be cast out, right? God's going to add to them all the plagues of this book. It's going to come upon them. Well, that's what they're doing. Who gave them the authority to do this? Who told you that it was good for you to devote your life to this monastic vow? Who told you to live a life of perpetual virginity? Who told you to live a life of professed poverty? Right, which makes them mooches. Right? This is what they are. They're bums and mooches, and they live off of the goodwill of other people instead of working and having a job and providing their own way. This is what they are. They're religious bums who live off the kindness and generosity of people who actually go to work. It's like the welfare state in our own country. It's the religious welfare state. It's horrible. Okay, let's look at a, a passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Right here, in this one too, I tell you, it's so obvious that what is taking place there is evil, not only when you look at the Bible, but also when you see the results of it. The results of the celibate life, let me say that again, the results of the so-called celibate life of the priest. I say so-called because they're not celibate. Many of them are perverts. They're, They're committing many perversions with children. This is happening. Is this not a scandal that comes out every week, every other week? How many billions of dollars have they paid out because of these these types of things that are going on? And it's not just happening in America. It's been happening for years. It's been happening from the very beginning because they're unbelievers and their hearts are filled with iniquity, with lust. Isn't lust in the heart of men? And then you tell men that you can't get married or that it's more godly not to get married, which is the the means that God has given for a man and a woman to, uh, to have this desire and to practice it in a proper relationship that is not sinful toward God, but you're cutting them off from that and then telling them it's godly, but they still have lust burning within their heart. So then what are they going to do? It's going to manifest itself in other ways, right? In their mind, in their thoughts, amongst one another, and then with children, and women also, they prey on these kinds of people. It's so horrible. It's so evil what is taking place. And it comes from the devil, the father of lies, who is a liar, a murderer, a destroyer from the beginning. They promote this type of godless, demonic theology, and it leads to demonic practices, and it's rampant. So we have to see it for what it is. First Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others, oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong place. I meant chapter, I said chapter 7, verse 9, and I started reading chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, all those things are true as well. (laughs) Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So there, he's giving the general rules. It's good for a man who's not married, he should not have relations with a woman. And an unmarried woman should not have relations with a man. This is sin, right? It's fornication. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, right, because this is the case, then each man should have his wife and each woman her own husband. This is the proper role, the proper relationship where these desires can be fulfilled in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. It's not sinful. It's not evil within the marriage relationship. And notice, the man has his wife, the wife, her husband. The man doesn't have his husband and the wife doesn't have her wife. The man with the woman, the woman with the man. Okay, that's the proper marriage relationship. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here, the husband and wife, the two become one flesh. Her body is his body. His body is her body. She doesn't have exclusive rights over her own body anymore. And he doesn't have exclusive rights over his own body. So if the husband desires this, then the wife should give to her husband what is his right as the husband, as his own body. And if the wife has this desire, then the husband should not deprive his wife, but should give to her what it is that she desires and what it is that she requires. This is the normal, natural relationship within the marriage covenant. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. So don't deprive each other of your conjugal rights, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Right? By agreement. So not one side, but not the other side. But in agreement together, right? For a limited time to devote yourself to prayer, right? For this spiritual reason, right? The wife or the husband wants to devote himself to prayer. He wants to be spiritually minded, spiritually focused, right? And he doesn't want to think about the things of this world, the pleasures of this world, these types of worldly things. And this is something that is associated with our present life now, right? Not that it's evil, but it is part of this present life because in the life to come, we'll be like the angels in relationship to marriage. We won't have husbands and wives and there won't be these types of conjugal relationships between the husband and wife. So there is a place for for the husband and wife not to come together in the normal, natural way, but it's for a limited time and to devote yourself to prayer for it's this godly reason and it has to be agreed upon, right? If the wife wants to do this, then she needs to talk to the husband about it. And if the husband says yes, okay, then good and great. If the husband wants to do this, he needs to talk to his wife. But, and if she says yes, then good and great. But if she says no, then don't, right? You need to respect them. Devote yourself to prayer. But then he says, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You need, it needs to be for a limited time, right? That's what he says. But then you need to come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is a strong desire in men and women, 
a passion that burns within them. And because of the lack of self-control, if the proper outlet is not functioning well, then it's going to lead to sin, either in the man or in the woman or both with the man and the woman, right? Because of lack of self-control. And it's not godly to say, well, you just need to get control of yourself. No, this is the way you have self-control in the marriage relationship. Just like we don't say to our children, you just need to get self-control and not eat for three days straight. No, you don't do that. You give them food, right, whenever they get hungry. Now, you don't let them gorge. You don't let them uh, eat with no restraint, but you do give them food, and you don't tell them to suck it up, right? Come on, you need to toughen up uh, and go two or three days without food. Now, verse 6, now as concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, uh, exception, a concession to this rule. The general rule that the apostle expects with men and women is that men would marry women, women would marry men, that they would live in harmony together, and that they would have normal, natural, marital relations one with another, they have children, raise a family, and, and do those things. There is an exception to this, not a command. He said, I'm not commanding you to do this. It is a concession. I wish that everyone was I, as I myself am. And the Apostle Paul did not have a wife. He was single, right? But he says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one for another. He knows that this is not a gift that God has bestowed on all people. Actually, it's very, very rare. It's the exception to the rule. In his case, he had this as a gift from God. He had control of his passions. He was not burning with lust. If he was burning with lust, then he would need to marry. But he wasn't burning with lust. God gave him an uncommon grace to be able to control these things for the sake of the gospel. Because if he's married, then he has duties at home. He has obligations in the home, with the children, with all the things that take place in domesticated life. But as a single man, he has the freedom to do what? He can come and go as he pleases. He can be on the run. He can have people trying to kill him. He can be thrown into prison. And he's not worried about and thinking about his wife, his children, how they're going to be cared for, all the things that are going on there. So for him, it was good because it gave him the freedom to minister, to preach the gospel as he wanted to preach. And there are other times where this would be the case, right? Though very rare. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here, unmarried and widows. He says, it's good to remain single as I am if you can control it, right? If you have self-control, but if you don't have self-control, if you're burning with passion, then you need to do what? You need to get married. You need to get married, then you have a husband, you have a wife, and then you can have what is expected, right? This is better than burning with passion. And again, this is the exception to the rule, is a single life like the Apostle Paul. We know that's the exception because of 1 Timothy chapter 5. What does he command the widows, the young widows, to do in 1 Timothy 5? He tells them to get married. Get married and raise a family. 
and give the enemy no occasion, right, to slander, no occasion for these evil things. Now, another example of someone who did have this self-control would be Anna. Anna in uh, Luke chapter 2. After she was married, and then she, her husband died seven years after she was married, and then though she was a young woman when he died, she did not remarry, but she continued day and night in the temple fasting and praying. But she also was practicing self-control, and she was a godly woman. But again, this is rare. It is the exception to the rule. What is common and what is to be practiced in the churches is marriage. Young men marrying young women, having children, raising a family, and that this is what we should practice. Who told the Roman Catholics that all of the priests should be celibate? Where is that found in the Bible? It's contrary to the Bible, right? And then what happens? They burn with passion, and so who do they take it out on? They take it whoever they can find, whether that be one another committing acts of sodomy or whether that be children, which happens as well. So it's ungodly. It is not spiritual. It is not a higher life. That's what they say. It's not that at all. It's actually, it's wicked, it's ungodly, and it leads to uh, misery, to ruin, and to death. For them, and then what about their victims, these children? What happens to a lot of them? Well, they grow up, and then they do the same things as well. Or their lives are ruined, and they have all these issues to deal with because of what was perpetuated upon them by these people who they trusted. Right? So we should not practice these types of things. These vows of perpetual single life are abhorrent, and we shouldn't do it, right? We shouldn't do it. It's not a legitimate. Also, professed poverty. Professed poverty. Who says being poor is a virtue? Why, why is that a virtue? Ephesians chapter 4, right? Ephesians chapter 4, and this is what I was mentioning earlier, right? They don't work. They sit around in the monasteries, they drink a lot of booze, right? They do that a lot. They drink and they eat, right? They are, they're gluttons and drunkards. They do these types of things. They will have times where they will afflict their bodies and do types of self-mutilation, things that they shouldn't do, which is evil as well. Like, for example, uh, Martin Luther, before he was converted, he was a Roman Catholic monk, and he would go sit in the cold, uh, without any clothes on, in the snow, run through briars, do these types of things because they think the body is itself evil and you have to afflict the body in order to obtain a higher form of Christian life. But is the body the problem or is it the heart? Right, it's the heart. That's what Jesus says. So all of this stuff is nonsense, right? Who does that? Who goes and runs through briars? Aren't we supposed to take care of our bodies, love our bodies, nurture our bodies? Should we sit out in exposure in the cold? No, we shouldn't do those things, right? That's not normal and natural. It's satanic and demonic. Ephesians 4, verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the thief who used to steal and pilfer, he shouldn't do that anymore, but rather he should get a job, right? Labor, work with his own hands. He needs to work, get a job, provide for himself, for his own family, and then also have something to share with others. This is the way he should do. Well, are they doing that in the monasteries? No, they're not working. 
They're not laboring. They're not earning anything. They're living off the generosity of other people, which is they're mooching in this way. They're, they're being bums under the guise of religiosity, right? This is what they are doing, and it's not good because it's contrary to the word of God. Okay, so obedience to monastic rules are by no means steps to higher perfection. Instead, they are superstitious and sinful snares in which Christians may not entangle themselves. So they're superstitious because they don't come from the Bible, but rather they come from the devil. And they're snares, traps and snares. They have the appearance of godliness, but they actually ensnare people into more perverse types of sin like pride, right? Like self-righteousness. These are the sins that these people are ensnared with. Pride, hypocrisy, self-righteousness. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So there, the disciples, after Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce, they say, but well, because of all of this potential for sin, it's better for a man not to even marry. But Jesus knows that this is not proper, and it's not going to be practiced commonly in the churches. And that's why he says not everyone can receive this saying. Not everyone can abide by that, that it's better not to marry. Right? And then he goes and describes eunuchs, and the eunuchs are being set forth as a group of people who aren't married, right? a, a eunuch. Some are eunuchs from birth, others are made that by men. Right? So there are some who don't have these parts uh, by either birth, some birthing defect, or because of something that a man did to them. And then others who are eunuchs, not in a literal physical way, but in a spiritual way. They've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That, like the Apostle Paul, this is what he was like. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Right? And this is by a gift from God. Not everyone can receive it. But the Roman Catholics teach that anyone who is in the clergy has to do this. It has to do it. Right? They have to be celibate. And they can never be married. Well, again, they're taking the place of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can give this to someone, not the Roman Catholic Church and not the, uh, the <clears throat> Pope. Okay, one last passage, 1 Samuel 14. This would be an example of a foolish, careless oath. And then we'll see that the men did not respect it, and then they did not fulfill it. And the men are in the right here. 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. It says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, 
So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So here, Saul and the men of Israel, they're fighting against the Philistines, and Saul puts an oath on the people, on the soldiers, saying anyone who eats food until the evening right, is under a curse. And in this case, the curse is he'll be put to death, right? He's going to be put to death until I am avenged on my enemies. Now, in the course of battle, men exert great physical strength. It is a very difficult, hard, rigorous task to be fighting battle all day long. And whenever you're doing that, you need food. You need to eat so that you can have your strength to to fight. So what he's putting them under, this expectation, is actually contrary to what he says he wants to accomplish. That I want to be avenged on my enemies. Well, if you want to be avenged on your enemies, then you should want the men to have their strength, to have their courage about them so that they can take it to the enemy. So what you're doing is actually contrary to what it is that you state you want to do. And is this godly? Is this honoring to God to tell men you can't eat all day long while you're going about this very difficult task of fighting? Right? So this is a rash, foolish, unbiblical oath. Right? He should not have done this thing. So the result is none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright, meaning his vigor came back to him. His strength was restored to him. It nourished him, right? So it, it caused him to be lifted up in this way, which is going to make him fight better, okay? That's going to be the result. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So Jonathan says, This is foolish. This is nonsense. It would be better had everyone eaten, and because we haven't eaten, the defeat of the Philistines wasn't as great as it would have been. So he wishes that this wouldn't have happened. Well, as it goes on, eventually it is found out that Jonathan did this, and then Saul intends to put him to death, right, because of these things. Then verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there is not one hair of his head that shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. So Saul is intending to kill his own son because of this foolish oath, but when the people hear about it, they say, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Not one hair is going to fall from his head. You're going to have to kill all of us to do so. And then Jonathan is 
spared from his father's oath. Because the people in Jonathan, they all knew and understood that this was illegitimate, that this is not a good oath, and we're not going to keep it. We don't care who made it. Even if it is the king, we're not going to follow it and shed this innocent blood of the man who is the one who worked the great victory for us to this day. So in that way, again, when someone makes a foolish or a unbiblical oath, it's not legitimate. It's not legitimate. They should repent of such foolishness and not do that type of stuff anymore. And so in the case of uh, a monk, say, who had committed himself to a life of perpetual uh, virginity to be single his whole life, to never get married. Well, if he repented of his sin, which would first be his idolatry in being in the Roman Catholic Church, and came out of that, then he would be free to marry because this is not a legitimate vow anyway. And that was what happened with many of the Roman Catholics who repented, like in the case of Martin Luther. He was a Roman Catholic monk, but then he repented of his idolatry first, and then he, he ended up becoming married and had many children, and he wasn't breaking a vow that he made before God because the vow was not legitimate and it wasn't sanctioned by a legitimate authority, right? It was sanctioned by the Antichrist. And so it's not binding on the conscience and the minds of true believers anymore. And in that way, this is how we should uh, judge these things. So that wraps up the uh, chapter on uh, lawful oaths and vows. And next time we'll turn to Civil government, civil government. We've got a lot of things to say about that. So we'll turn to that. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about that, and it is very applicable in our own day as well. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that your word is true. Lord, that we know that every time we read the Bible, every single word that we come across, Lord, is true. Every thought is truthful. Lord, every doctrine that is taught, every act of righteousness, Lord, every pronouncement of sin and judgment, everything is legitimate, it is true, it is good, it is holy, and it is right. Because it comes from you, and you are the God of all truth. You are a righteous God, and a God who always does what is good and just. And Lord, we pray that we as your people, Lord, that we would be like you. That just as you are holy, so Lord, that we would be holy in all that we do. And that this holiness would be manifested in, in our mouths, Lord, in our words, in the, the things that we say. Lord, that we would be faithful to do all that we have sworn to do. Lord, that we would be men and women who keep our word, whose yes is yes and whose no is no. And that, Lord, when we are called to make an oath or a vow before you, Lord, that we would do so with all seriousness. Lord, that we would make our vows to you and to you alone and that we would be faithful to do all that you have called us to do. So, Lord, teach us, Lord, to not be careless with our words. Lord, remind us every day that every idle word that we speak will be brought into light on the day of judgment, so that we might be careful in what we say, and that we might speak only what is truthful. Lord, we pray that you put your word into our hearts and into our mouths, so that much of what comes forth from us Lord, is simply a repeating, a resuscitation of your own word. And Lord, we know that it is true. Lord, be with us as we go from here today. Give us safety as we travel home. Lord, bless us the remainder of this Lord's day as we continue to worship you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.